Welcome to the Wisdom of Madness with Rasuli and Jesh Darox. Two friends from different worlds discuss the beauty and mystery of creativity. I was reading the office and the line was, O seekers of joy, let's open the tie in the hair of the beloved. Hmm. Beautiful imagery to feel that hair just spilling yeah. out, you know? Yeah. That's so interesting. I was just I was just talking yesterday about how when I was a photographer, you know, primarily early in my work, I was very drawn to the motion of freedom or that feeling of freedom. And I, I wanted that sense in my images. And the images I became most drawn to and felt had the most of that in it for me, I, I called it a girl hair in the wind. <laughs> and it's these images, you know, where these girls have these long hair and it's a windy day and the wind is just whipping the hair all around. And I noticed that seems to be the most free part of a person's physical body is the hair because it's just constantly surrendering in whatever direction, especially if you have long, windy hair like that. Hair in Hafez's concept is the path to the beloved. Mm. Because see, when you... When you hold the tip of the hair of the beloved, you end up to the beloved because the hair is connected <laughs> to the beloved. There are infinite ways that you can follow to get to the beloved. So if you're after something to achieve or love or whatever it is, you don't need to think about where I'm going or what I'm doing or any of that. All you have to do is get the tip of the hair, mm. of the beloved. Just begin the first step towards something that you love. Yes. Just take the first step with that feeling, that sensation. What it reminds me of is there's a, a similar kind of story with Jesus where he's walking through this crowd, this multitude. He's being pressed on every side. People are thronging him, trying to get something from him or whatever. And all of a sudden he stops and he says, who touched me? And his disciples are like, what do you mean who touched you? There's been like a million people all around you, you know, pressing in on all sides. And he's like, no, someone just touched me because I felt the virtue go out. And it turns out that this one lady had just kind of reached out and only touched the very fringe of his garment. But in the way that she did it, the power went through like that. And I think it's so interesting because a lot of the time, People, they have this idea of what it would be like to touch Jesus or get to the beloved. And it has to look a certain way, like the beloved's face or Jesus's face or whatever. And it's like, no, sometimes the first step on that journey will actually be looking nothing like what the end result is going to look like. And touching Jesus is not really, you don't have to go on a journey to the past or far distances or anything. Because Jesus is assembled of humanity. It's a symbol of a divine human. So to reach for this symbol, you don't need to have the physical thing. This is what I have against the cross in the church, mm. because that symbol freezes my imagination, does not allow me to feel Christ, 
that keeps on freezing me into Christ was crucified with this. And, mm-hmm. and the whole concept stays with that thing that I know rather than the thing that I can feel. Mm. And I think for us to feel Jesus is just to get in that zone. And Jesus is not you know, 2,000 and something years ago. Jesus is right here, yes. and it has always been here. Yes. <laughs> so all it is is to connect with it through our imagination, through mm. our perception, rather than seeing a picture and say, oh, this is Jesus, this represents Jesus. Well, there was four main writers that ended up getting included in the Bible that told you know the basic story of Jesus that they call the Gospels. Three of them are pretty similar. They kind of just tell the story in a factual seeming kind of a way. And then the fourth one was a wild one, you know, and he told it in a very poetic way. And you would get a kick out of this if you're not already familiar with this. He never wrote his own name when he talked about the whole story, even though he was one of the 12. He never referred to himself by his name. He always said, the disciple whom Jesus loved, referring to himself as the beloved, you know, which is pretty badass. It's quite bold. Of so many stories I could tell about that particular character, which is certainly my favorite from that whole troupe, the way that he ends his story about Jesus is incredibly profound. The way he begins it is also profound, but the way he ends it is just as profound. He ends it by saying, if all the books, if all the stories of Jesus, if all the things that he said and did, you know, were written, I suppose even the world could not contain about who he was and what he came here to do. And to just end the basic story with that is like what I would call leaving room for the X, leaving room for the unknown equation. And especially when you're talking about an infinite God, infinite universe, an infinite life source, no matter how much you ever know, there will always be more that you don't know about an infinite thing than the amount that you know. Which is blessing. That, that, that is really the best part of the whole it's thing. the best part. To tap into the unknown, to get into the unknown. Yes. Because as long as you're in the known, it's a judgment. Yes. It's constantly comparison. But the moment you get into the unknown, that's when your imagination begins to create. That's why arts are so important in life. Yes. Arts and nature. Yep. Because they put us in that zone of losing the comparison. Yes. So when you look at something natural, you just enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You don't compare it with something else. You just feel it, enjoy it. Same thing with art. You just feel it, enjoy yes. it, and stay with it. So that mystery is what we need to get into because as long as we're into the reality, we just no different from a cat or a dog or, or even a dead rabbit. Yes. But what makes us human being is to get into that zone of dreaming, into that being an angel flying in wherever you want to go. It's so interesting you say that because when I think about life and what life means to me, it's definitely movement. It's always in movement. It's never completely still that ability we have to create symbols, some of which can be helpful if they lead to movement, but many times just stop us dead. You know, even in your description of how you feel when you look at that cross, how it just stops you and it gets you stuck on that one thing that you already know instead of the continuing and the movement. You've talked so many times with me about how 
art is a is a movement and it's a circuit and it's a flow and so in that it's very much a representation of life which is a constantly moving flow and circuit art originally was not to be a product yes it was a movement it was a flow it was a a verb mm-hmm. to art was to connect things yes. together to connect your emotion with your physical being together that's to art mm-hmm. and an artist is somebody who has that capability to connect his or her emotion and physical environment together that's really beautiful and it reminds me of something that i've been thinking about in terms of what humans are capable of i like thinking of all the different things that humans could be especially on the outer edges of us and one of the things i like thinking about is non-locality and how non-locality basically means that you could be affecting somebody and touching somebody and moving somebody who's far away from you where your physical body isn't doing anything to them and we have brilliant examples of that in people like you know mozart and beethoven and hafez who their physical body has not moved anybody in a really long time and yet their works are so full of movement and life that's the most non-local you can get is to be dead for hundreds of years and still to be moving people from wherever they are now uh with that movement inside their work and so you look at art that way and how closely that mirrors life how a seed can be planted and can produce thousands of seeds that can end up you know producing entire forests all coming from one seed that now has long since passed so art truest art most powerful art seems to directly mirror life the beauty of art is that it can personalize it mm. when you have image which is fixed this is it this is a cup period but when the image is not fixed it allows you to constantly create it mm. and that's why i really don't like to see the representation of the christ as somebody physical i was walking in the getty museum the other day as i was walking there was this tour guide and there were these group of people that the tour guide was showing them things and they were uh, standing in front of a peter paul romance painting of christ on the cross you can feel like his soul is left wow and then there is this soldier with a arrow yeah and it has the arrow pushed against Christ's chest and mm-hmm. the blood is coming and the guide was talking about it as i walked by suddenly out of the bloom i said it stinks <laughs> i didn't mean i don't know why i did that <laughs> Obviously the way I look, you know, I don't look like a comedian. <laughs> so I look like there's something that I want to maybe I could share. And so they were silent and they looked at me and I figured well I better say something. <laughs> <laughs> so I said to give a physical form mm. to a concept, such a fixed physical form, it's going to just take away everything that i can connect with as the christ mm. suddenly there is this blood coming down and i feel this body that was probably some prisoner who died or something that is used as a model to paint this from and then he did that and but then what happened to christ mm. 
what happened to Christ? When we emphasize on a symbol of something and make it as a fixed thing, we take away from allowing the spirit of people to connect with it. It's so incredible. I mean, one of the things that really jumped out to me from what you said is how that, you know, if we're talking about art can be a direct mirror of life, but you put this really beautiful addition on that to say, but art is a way of making life very, very personal to people and very meaningful to them personally, because life is so big. It's so big. It's impossible to comprehend even the barest edges of it, similar to a subject like God. You know, it's just too big. And so there has to be some personal bridge, some personal relationship, which I think the best of art does really, really well. You have people say things like, God, this one book, it changed my life. You know, or this one painting, when I saw that, everything changed. So it somehow takes the incredible vastness and infiniteness, the infinite nature, and it, it, it boils it down to just something that's bite-sized, that can fit in our mouth, that we can digest, some little marker. But the other thing I really love you know, about what you're talking about is um, how sometimes we will just get so used to thinking of something as art or thinking of something as God or whatever that will miss the point that both of those things, if they're true, they should produce movement. That's, that's the true test of them. And sometimes when I talk about religion, I say, to me, religion is like a sculpture of a fire. And at the very, very best, even if you had the best sculptor in the world, all they could ever do was have captured that powerful you know, figure in one moment of his life. And even if it's the best one in the world, that was only one of a million different things that he was during that time. And that will never have heat. That sculpture will never have heat and it will never move and it will never actually cast light. So as important as it is to have those symbols, the symbol only has power to the degree that it causes a movement to happen in somebody, you know, where they take on the aspects of that flame and they become that, they, they carry on that message, which as we know, a lot of times the symbology has, has trapped us and kind of killed that movement, mm -hmm. you know, in people instead of encouraged it. I love the idea of what internet is doing to us now, allowing so many artworks to be around. Mm. There was a time that we were limited, maybe 500 musicians, but now 5 million artists that are everywhere. And that is so pleasing because it allows us to connect with the type of art yes. I can feel. Yes. I'm not forced to listen to wow. Beethoven's Ninth all the time in different versions of it. Mm -hmm. I had a professor at the university uh, when I was studying painting, and among everything that I learned from him, there was one sentence that sounded very weird when he said it, but it made my life. And the sentence was, paint whatever you like, there's always a sucker. <laughs> You know, as, as bad as it felt, it gives you that total freedom that you were talking about. Yes. There's always a sucker. Yes. There's somebody somewhere yes. who just takes this in. I love that term too, because even though that's often used in a negative connotation, a sucker, the very first thing that I thought was like, well, a little baby is a sucker. <laughs> that's what they do. And they're, they're getting nourished, you know, right. by the mother. And so... I love that concept that when you are doing what's really making you come alive and nourishing you, 
it will nourish somebody else too. There will be people out there who will connect with it that way. But when you speak of a sucker, you got to say that's the feminine power because feminine power is the one that devours. It attracts and devours. So when you're dealing with a sucker, it just feels like you're dealing with the instrument that as you play, it just expands by itself and overtones come together and create this melody that mm. it's amazing. Or the other day I was painting and it was raining on the canvas and, and I was fascinated with that. It was, it was like a, watching a great movie. As my brush was in the air, Mother Nature was doing her own brush on it. And the whole combination of my painting and the nature's painting. You know, you frequently have this subject, which I so appreciate from you, that you just pound in again and again and again in so many of our conversations about the danger of judgment and how judgment can just kill the movement and how humans have this weird ability to live inside of a judgment which, which freezes everything and really disconnect ourselves from that flow of life. Something that's really interesting to me right now in terms of this context of the conversation we're having is how that when you feel like you know everything there is to know about a subject, let's say Jesus, but you could also apply this to the painting, then there's a certain kind of a, a fear that is attached to that because if somebody else comes along and says, well, there's this other thing to know, instantly you're threatened. Instantly you're like, no, I already know all the things that there are to know. Or if you have a very specific idea about how the painting should turn out, and then Mother Nature, in a million different ways that Mother Nature messes with things, starts messing with it, maybe in the form of rain, maybe in the form of your spouse saying, hey, it's time for dinner or whatever, you know, some piece of you could come in and feel threatened and be like, no, the painting is supposed to be this certain way. But when you can approach something like, like John did when he was writing about Jesus and he says, hey, look, here's part of the story. But if I'm honest, if all the books, you know, that should be written were written, even the world couldn't contain all of the rest of the books, you're just leaving yourself so much room for all of the things that you don't know yet, that you haven't experienced yet. And it's just, to me, so much wiser. And I also think so much less fearful because if somebody comes along and says, oh, well, there's actually more to know about Jesus, you're like, oh, great. That probably fits into this, you know, all the other books part. Or if Mother Nature comes and messes with your painting, you go, oh, great. I didn't know how this painting was going to turn out anyways. The biggest enemy that we have, the Satan, the devil, is just knowledge. Purely knowledge is that enemy that deals with us because knowledge brings us into comparison. Without knowledge, there is no comparison. We are as divine as God who created us. Because God does not have a you know, comparison that, oh, let me do another galaxy like this other one that I did. Just knowing by itself is only good for physical body. I should know so I won't run into the wall. <laughs> Whatever has to do with the physical necessity, then we need the knowledge for it. You know, if you want to be a good businessman, develop your knowledge so you would be able to master your business or whatever it is that you're doing. Knowledge outside what has to do with the physical body mm. is the devil that appears in our life wow. and just stop that divine power, mm. creative power, God's power that wants to do its own job. Suddenly that knowledge comes and freezes it. 
That is so profound, you know, because it's even interesting, like in the, you know, original mythology around Adam and Eve, they're in the garden and they have access to everything. They basically live in a, a paradise state. Then the great transgression that she ends up supposedly making is that she ends up eating of this tree. And the tree that she ate of was called the tree of good and evil knowledge, you know, and that's the thing that actually got them kicked out of, out of, of the paradise state. So if we take that to like a mental state rather than a physical story of something that happened, you can easily clearly see the ramifications there. It's also interesting too, you know, that in the story about how God created the world, at the end of it, he's basically like, it is good. And so he basically said, this was exactly how I want it to be. And so some human coming along and being like, well, I like this part and I don't like this other part. You could actually say that is the Antichrist. It's the very literal representation of the Antichrist. Exactly. Because See, you're denying. The reason you say I like this or I don't like that is because of knowledge. Yes. A baby, a child without knowledge is not going to compare anything with anything. Mm. This is the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. This is the way the divine works. Yep. This is the way the universe is. This is the way God is. This is yep. It just expands yep. without any kind of comparison. Beautiful. To be a creative person, which we are all, is to be God. Like Paul Gauguin said that, I create, therefore I'm God. Mm. What stops us from creating is knowledge. What stops us from creating the light bulb is because Thomas Edison already did it. If he hadn't done it, then maybe I would go after figuring out how I can light up the darkness at night. So that allows me to be God, to create constantly more and more. Knowledge stops me. Devil is right there, stopping me from being God. I think it's so important what you say too, you know, that knowledge applied to specific things becomes helpful. Knowledge applied to survival becomes helpful. But knowledge applied to anything that's infinite, which includes life, which includes ourself, which includes God, as soon as you start applying knowledge just to that, blockage appears instantly. It's such a temptation, you know, to spread that judgment everywhere. Again, I mean, we've been talking a lot about Jesus today, but that was something that he said quite famously. He's like, here's the deal. If you don't judge, you won't be judged. It's really that simple. And so if you don't judge other people, you won't live inside of judgment yourself. And so you'll be completely free of judgment. And Paul later backs that up and he goes, hey guys, I don't even judge myself. Because I think that's one of the big things. People were like, well, I don't think Mary's bad, and I don't think, you know, Sam is bad, and but me, I've got a lot to do of this, and I've this, and I've this, and I've done this wrong. And Paul is like, that's maybe the worst of all of the judgments. Because at least when you judge somebody else, they can notice it, and they can call you out on it. But when you judge yourself, who's there to witness that? Who's there to watch that? And most humans, most of us, have judged ourselves thousands and thousands of times and done a grievous error to our spirit and our soul and our potential because we've put shackles and, and prisons around something that was made to be free. Why Jesus had to have apostles? Why couldn't Jesus be Jesus without apostles? Mm. Why can't we just get directly from the source? What comes to me is this similar question 
that you know you raised earlier in the talk, which I really, really loved. I've never heard it said like this before, and it really stuck with me when I heard it, and that is art has a way of making things personal. And it could be said, maybe Jesus in his character, even though he represented the infinite, was a finite expression uh, in several different ways. And so maybe not everybody could have listened to him and liked his style or his particular flavor. But maybe one of the other apostles really would have done it for somebody. To me, I think the power of sharing the true things that we feel and experience and giving them to others is that the form constantly changes and shifts in a similar way as life. A plant might not grow very well in a certain place, but it might eke out just enough life to be able to produce a seed. Then that seed gets eaten by some animal, and that animal spreads it far away, poops it out somewhere, and then that seed now has a chance to grow in a new space. So to me, the whole thing of apostles and, and all of that isn't about a hierarchy, which I think is one of the problems a lot of times in our way of looking at it is we'll say, well, there was one at the top and then everybody else was at the bottom. And there's this beautiful Japanese saying that is the teacher and the student between them create the teaching. And that's so beautiful because it makes all of us equal. It makes all of us a part of the same thing, which is like, who could say that the seed or the squirrel that eats the seed is greater? They're just both part of the same huge, beautiful thing, which is called life. For me, that answer would, at least in this moment, be that we're all interconnected in the spreading and the expression of this beautiful, infinite thing that could never be said enough. Mm -hmm. There could never be enough ways to say it. Yeah. So each one is important. In a way, what you're saying is that each one of these apostles is taking a certain ray from that divine presentation yes. and makes it reachable for a certain group of people who can connect with that. Yes. And apostles have different character. Yes. They're all not the same way. Right. They're completely different. It allows us to recognize that there is a lot of possibilities yes. yep. in what comes through the Christ. Yep. It's not just this. Yes. So 12 is only a symbol yes. that we can see it has been going on with our planets, with everything that sort of somehow makes a complete cycle. Mm -hmm. But each one of those apostles can have their own 12 and just on and on and on and on. And that is why we have preachers and we have saints because of these connections that allows us to recognize that divine word is not limited yes. to just this. Any preacher who is zeroing in on that, they don't even know divinity. No, they've branched off into their own virtual world and stopped the flow. Because it's interesting too with this 12 number, and it is a very common number around spiritual things. And Sometimes when people look at numbers and what they mean, they'll add up all of the numbers together. And what you get when you add up 12 sequentially is three. This whole idea of three is also a very powerful spiritual number, but not just spiritually. I've been really noticing this repeating pattern of three lately, you know, where there's the mother and the father and the child, and that creates this triangle. But the mother was the child of another mother and father, and the father was a child of another mother and father, who were also the child of another. So there's this infinite triangle that goes up and this infinite triangle that goes down that has to do with the union of the opposites. And so for me, this whole idea of the 12 apostles wasn't really about 12 apostles. It was about keep the message going, keep the message flowing. One of my favorite scriptures is 
this story from the Talmud where it says, above every blade of grass, there's an angel whispering, grow, grow. I, I really love that. Actually, mm. God is masculine energy and feminine energy. The two unite and the universe is created. God is what creates the world. God is the energy that creates the world. It's these feminine and masculine energy that they come together. As Rumi says, Zendagani Ashti is it has, just like you said. Life is the union of the opposites. Mm. So that all sounds like God. Mm. That whole universe is the result of the union of the opposites. The whole creative process is the result of the union of the opposites. We've got to get into that zone. Yes. When you create, bring your feminine energy and masculine energy together, and then that is what God is doing. This is doing God. This is doing the divine thing. It's so, so profound and powerful, I think, and so poignant right at this time because we're experiencing tribalism in such an extreme degree expressed in so many different ways, which is basically people grouping together and saying, I think this and you guys think that. And all that leads to is, you know, separation, separation, divisiveness, divisiveness. And again, you have this stunning message of Jesus who he says, here's what you do with your enemies. You love them. And what is an enemy? An enemy is the opposite. So it's like when you notice the opposite, don't run away and get 20 other people and say, those guys are opposites. Let's all be the same together. That will lead to absolutely no creativity. The powerful creative act is to look at the opposites and say, perfect. Let's go over there and let's play with that and let's explore with that and let's see what comes from the union of those two things. When a union takes place, what triggers it? I would say attraction. Attraction, beautiful. Attraction is a feminine power. If masculine power begins to move towards it, it's helping the union. Mm. But if masculine power begins to judge it, suddenly you stop the union. When I'm painting, if brush slips from my hand, it's not that I get pissed off that the brush slipped and marked in the wrong part of the canvas. I begin to see how can I make a connection between this thing that happened yes. and what I'm doing. Yes. That making a connection is doing the union. So when this, the brush slips and the paint gets on a wrong part of the canvas in my mind, what happens at this point? There's an attraction taking place, but I'm judging it. Yes. I am not becoming attracted to it. Wow. I'm judging it. So the moment I begin to judge it, the evil is there. The devil is there preventing the divine work. It's so incredible because as you know, largely because of you over this last 12 months, here's 12 again. I have really been focusing on exploring surrender and what that means to me. My favorite one line that has kind of become my, my flag for that particular exploration is Rumi talking about when the, the great sheikh was asked, what is Sufism? How do you define it? And he says, great joy in sudden disappointment. That really is the complete dissolution of judgment because if you can have great joy when the thing that you would normally be bitterly disappointed about if you have great joy, great joy comes from attraction. That comes from the union of those opposites. And so 
to be in that space where you are not allowing any of the judgment to interfere, what you would really find is that everything around you constantly was calling. Everything was attracting to you. And every little thing that happened was an invitation for you to grow and for you to continue the message and for you to play your part. And then when you look at it that way, that we're constantly being called, constantly being attracted, you look at just how many times most of us are missing that call, which is like 99.9% of the time. Even someone like myself who's dedicated their life to the arts and to creativity and to life and to spiritual experience, still, even me, constantly I'm missing that call. It's such a powerful force, this, this darkness, you know, this Satan, this judgment like you're calling it. It's perhaps way more pervasive than I've ever even realized. Prophet has a verse. He says, Rahis, Rahesh, Jan Ra, Kenarinist. Anja, Josanke, Jan Besaparand, Charanist. The way of love, the way of creativity has no shoulder. There's no stop anywhere. The same way as attraction brings joy, attraction can also bring pain. The moment attraction gets faced with judgment, it turns into pain. The moment attraction is outside, mm. judgment becomes joy. Cause of pain is inflammation, whether it's physical, spiritual, or mental. When we deal with people who are obsessed, it's the inflammation that has made them obsessed. It's been the constipation as taking too much in and not putting out that has taken them into obsession. Mm -hmm. Then when you're attracted to something, if your attraction triggers the masculine movement mm. within you, then you're already in joy. Because it's you going for the beloved. Now it's the time that your beloved is arriving. All of these has happens at the same time as you make that movement. And that is what joy is all about. Joy is not about having something. Mm. Joy is about longing for something. <laughs> joy is about painting. And I'm longing for this finished painting so I can put it in front of me and watch it and see what is that I painted. That's the joy. But when the painting is done, does it give me enjoyment? No, it gives me satisfaction, gives me pleasure. But joy was only when I was in the process of making love. This takes us back to the idea of creativity. And to be in joy is to be attracted and to move towards what attracts you, the two together. Now you take it to the next level of creativity. Your feminine energy wants to devour. When you surrender to being devoured, mm. you're in joy. When you surrender to hearing the rhythms that you would not be hearing with your rational mind, that is when you're surrendering to the divine energy that makes you creative. It's that muse that we surrender to. But the moment what I call specter appears, is the judgment comes in, oh no, thou shalt not do that. The moment these comes into the life, then you are facing a limitation that causes problems. One small thing is this idea of the inflammation 
you know, being the source of pain, I think is really fascinating because when we talk about disease in the body, what we're usually talking about is an imbalance. There's an imbalance that's, that's happened. And when we're talking about life being the union of these two opposites, it's very clear that all that has to happen for an imbalance is one of those gets more or less. And if we attach that to the thought we've been exploring, which is that the feminine, the divine feminine of the attraction to life itself is constant, constantly calling us at all times. Our job at any given moment is to be aware of that attraction, step one, step two, to go towards it, to dive into it, you know? And I think a lot of us aren't aware of that attraction. That's one of the challenges. And then the other challenge is, even when we are aware, we're afraid. We're afraid to really dive in. And you could see how constantly being given to in all the ways that we are, constantly seeing that attraction, that pull, but then not doing it creates an imbalance. It creates an imbalance in the mind and in the body and in the way that we see ourselves, And the charging, like all the energy that comes from the attraction that is in the male or in the masculine energy, if it doesn't do anything about all of that, it just gets pent up and becomes inflamed and becomes in a diseased state. But if all that energy that's received is then spent in the rush towards the dive in, the complete surrender towards, then all that energy you know, dissipates, which then now you have space to receive the new. And so what I could see is just a life lived as full and rich as a life really could be lived would be a life of constant movement, of constant receiving, and of constant loss, and of constant spending every single thing that you had, and of constant gaining, you know, even more than that, and then constantly giving that all away in just this endless, you know, movement. And I think that kind of a picture of what a life is compared to how a lot of life here on the planet is in terms of human life is not like that. It's, I've got these five things and I'm going to keep this. I'm going to guard this and you can't take it. Don't you dare take this from me. Don't you dare take my beliefs from me. Don't you dare take, you know, this thing that I built this one time 70 years ago from me. And that just creates a situation where we're, we're headed on a, a train towards inflammation, mm-hmm. you know, towards constipation, like you say, because even that is a, a fascinating and very visceral way of looking at it. It's what's the problem with constipation? You've been given too much and you haven't done anything with it. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to let sure. it go. Sure. For the people who are listening to what we're talking about, how do I go about doing this? These things that you guys are saying is all sounds good, but what do I do? How do I get there? What's the way to get there? And the answer was simply given by Professor Lewis to me when I was in college. Do whatever you like to do. There's always a sucker who goes for it. That gives you a freedom that you want to create. There's somebody who is going to say, wow, what a beautiful way you did this. And that, that frees you from being worried about judgment of other people. The Wisdom of Madness is produced by Rasuli, Jesh Durox, and Elizabeth Joy Windham. Our theme music is by Niklas Poshberg. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this podcast, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and community. 